Hi, and welcome to MIR Meets, a podcast where we discuss a wide variety of topics with guests. Today, I'm happy to talk with Ketia Ul, an analyst who has been living in Shanghai for the last years. Unlike other of my podcasts, this one will be more of a conversation than an interview, a casual conversation where we will discuss our shared identity as half Chinese, half Quebecois, and our experiences with China's recent development. We jump right into conversation as Katya tells us about a recent trip to Beijing she made. Enjoy. I don't know if you just saw, but I went to Beijing uh, this weekend. I'm so jealous. Yeah. So jealous. Beijing is my city. It's, How was it? It was really nice. The first day, there's like a huge pollution cloud and there's like a st- the sandstorm. And the second yeah. day, it was just a completely blue sky. It was two different environments. Yeah, I Beijing is really, food. it's not Shanghai is better because you have like the wind from the sea all the time. And I remember Beijing yeah. around this time. I was there same time three years ago. And there was that one sandstorm. Okay, the PM uh, PM 2.5 was, you couldn't count it anymore. It was over 1000 because it was just okay. blocking all the radars. And it felt like the whole city had a, a filter, an orange filter. It was completely crazy. Yeah, like on, on the temperature app, on the weather app, you see that like the, the background, you know, when you see it's cloudy, they put clouds. Like over here, it's just orange as well. It was just yeah. like sand. Oh. But it's not but then you the sandstorm. So many blue skies, though. Yeah, that's the thing. Like from my childhood, I remember when I went to Beijing, because like when I went to China, it was during summer. And then when I went during Shang- in, to Shanghai, the sky was completely gray because it was rainy season. So I thought Shanghai was more polluted. And when I went to Beijing, the skies were blue, like especially like when I was younger. Apparently the pollution got worse and then better. But yeah, the sandstorms are actually not, they're not pollution. It's actually like sandstorms that come from inner Mongolia and it's normal. Yeah, it's been they're really historically bad. happening the entire time. You need a mask and all. And I, it's true. Yeah. Like I remember me too, because we were going when we had summer break, right? So I remember going and there was a typhoon in Shanghai and you know, the, in the like on the bun, what's the name of that tower with the, the, the red balls? I don't know what the name is, but the famous the Shanghai, Shanghai TV tower. tower yeah Shanghai TV tower you could only see the lower ball the rest was yeah. all like covered in cloud and typhoon and it was there was nobody on the bun which is quite refreshing but I guess it needed a, like a typhoon to to not see anyone there but uh yeah in Beijing I remember like I don't know you probably didn't go but I saw you went to the summer palace and stuff but like in Tsinghua the campus it was like there's those gardens that are super beautiful you walk there and it's kind of paradisiac it's just like blue skies you have 13 canteens to choose from you just go and eat and and have fun that's good vibes yeah yeah and i mean let's not forget that beijing has architecture from like centuries old and shanghai most of their architecture well, is really those that didn't recent. get destroyed yeah exactly <laughs> but whatever they kept they maintained quite nicely including like the llama temple random restaurants yeah and, but there were big controversies and, right because they were destroying the hutongs at some point massively to let space for yeah. modern buildings now they stopped because they realized how precious this is but i was going to say did you see the old summer palace i went to the tiananmen square and the national museum for an exhibition on like the early early few thousand histories of china and we we had a chinese tour guide and he like spent a lot of time in uh, europe and then came back to china so he really like got the opinions of both sides and he was very like factually re- ready to admit for example that like the the shang dynasty there's no written proof which is what like you know the cuneiform this uh, the babylonian tablets that's what proves that there's civilization and actual dynasties china doesn't have that for the first dynasty but there's like artifacts from that period so he was really willing to show both sides so it was really interesting but we only we were only able to stay for like two three hours and it's like the louvre museum you have to you can spend entire like entire weeks and months there right i don't think i've ever been yeah i really suggest that you go with a tour guide because um you just see the artifacts and it doesn't mean much but when there's someone explaining the entire context the history the implication why like you know a lot of artifacts were destroyed especially like during times like their cultural revolution and everything and whatever was conserved they really really value it it's interesting because from a a history standpoint like we grew up in montreal right where the history is not that old or you know we, we get taught a bit of the indigenous history which is is great and lasts it's like that's been there for a long time of course but it's striking to me when I talk to, to like people to go to school in China because they have a 
big grasp of ancient history, right? Because they get taught dynasties and the order of dynasties and like three kingdoms history and like all these legendary warriors and, and warlords and, and, and emperors, right? And for us, even what we know of China is century of humiliation and it's like opium wars and it's like, you know, Mao Zedong and all these things, which they learn, but like not as much as like ancient history. So it's a very interesting contrast and a very interesting take, you know, like, you know, I studied history in undergrad and it's like, all those narratives yeah. that you push, it's like they all have an importance. And the fact that they chose in the curriculum to talk about the ancient dynasty might be a bit, you know, it shows kind of this idea, this nationalistic idea of we want to go back to what it was, right? And at that time, it was this, this Tianxia concept. It was all under heaven. It was China at the center of everything. And I guess they kind of aspire to get back to this recently and getting out of this century of humiliation, don't want to talk about the imperialism that they were under, et cetera. I think it's interesting. And that's why I asked you earlier, I said, did you go to the old summer palace? Because the new summer palace is the one that they have, right? That is um, also near, also near Qinghua in the Northwest of Beijing. But the old summer palace is the one that was there before, before the, the, I think it's the five nation alliance that came in China and in Beijing at the beginning of the 20th century and just destroyed everything there. So I think this is interesting that people go to this new summer palace, but don't go to the old summer palace where we only see runes and it's like. Yeah, I wasn't able to go there, unfortunately, but I mean, you're you're lucky that you're actually able to study some have an undergrad in history and go deeper into these subjects. I mean, I also come from Canada and I that like the little exposure to Chinese history that we have is basically the cultural revolution. And then during, in the context of the second world war, there's, uh, you know, Japan is an ally of Germany and then Japan invades China. We hear a Nanjing bit about the Nanjing massacre. Yeah. And that's like one point that people remember. Then you hear about like China's rise and it's, it's, it's industrial development and pollution and now being a threat in COVID. And that's what you hear, but you get very little context of its few thousand years of history, which now, as you said, they're taking pride in and cultivating that. But there's a huge, there's a huge discrepancy between what Chinese people learn in their classrooms of a few thousand years of history that gives them this sense of pride being one of the first civilizations to develop versus what we see of China, which is basically, as you said, starting from the centuries in the 1800s of uh, humiliation and then now rising again. Okay, and I'm gonna bring a last point about history and then I'll shut up about it. <laughs> to not be annoying but when I was in Tsinghua I, I did a paper on on something related and I think it's very interesting it's basically China's doing huge push recently to record a lot of their, their historical sites as world heritage sites the UNESCO world heritage site and that is also telling of like a big push to be recognized internationally as having a really rich history you know what I mean and maybe you've noticed when you go to Chinese historical sites their plaques of like saying that they're from UNESCO are huge. Like they really put it forward. And I think it really shows that they want to be integrated in this kind of world global historical heritage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think they're a very strong proponent of that and uh, of getting worldwide recognition of their sites and they're applying and actually like as foreigners, good decision-making factor when we make our travel choices is to see whether the site is UNESCO approved for example, like when I went to Jiangxi last May in 2020, like the lockdown had just finished and uh, we decided to go to uh, Sanqingshan and Mount Lushan, which are two very, very famous mountains. And Jiangxi is where the long march started, right? So, yeah. and those are very, very famous mountains. Mount Lushan was depicted in a poem by Li Bai, glorifying, giving honor to this mountain. And they're absolutely beautiful sites, but most foreigners and the international community wouldn't recognize these sites if it weren't for the UNESCO heritage. But even then, I'm surprised out. that you went there. Like, not many people go to Jiangxi. Yeah, I, I guess it was, uh, well, I mean, it was a group decision, right? But it was it was really a nice experience. I think the main point was, okay, we're a group of foreigners who want to go hiking, but these were, you know, if, if you're going hiking, but there's also a historical context and yeah, connotation nice. to where you're going, there's extra value to it, right? It was a really nice experience, yeah. It's really interesting because China has a lot of tourism, of course, but it's so complex in some ways to get into China with the visas and everything. But there's such a big component that is domestic tourism, right? 
when you have any holiday, just the amount of commuting within the country by train is just ridiculous. It's insane, right? So I think people go a lot to these sites and there's all those those sacred Tao mountains, there's all those sacred Buddhist mountains and they just go around and yeah, it's cool. I miss this. I mean, you talk about hiking, usually hiking in China is basically just climbing up a lot of stairs. But <laughs> Yeah, that's if you're lucky. Most of it, if you're unlucky, is that you have a tour bus and then they bring you to a site <laughs> and you're already up on the top of the mountain. You take your picture and you go back down and there's no hiking whatsoever. So if you can climb up even some stairs, that's already an, a huge exploit. But especially right now during the, the next holiday that's uh, coming up, the national holiday is, is the Qingming Festival. Yeah. And people are already planning their trips. We're all looking to go hiking nearby. And I mean, there's planes, but there's also high-speed trains. And those give you access to very, very nice mountains, for example, in the outskirts of Shanghai, for example, Zhejiang, Anhui, where there's Huangshan, which is very famous, and Jiangxi, yeah. for example. So nice. those are some And for those who don't know, Qimingjie is tomb sweeping holiday, where you, like traditionally you go and, and sweep the tomb of the ancestors. You know, that's something I learned in China. I've never heard of this holiday. And I remember when it was in, in Qinghua, that was, there were, you know, we have our own holidays. We have Easter coming up. We have um, Christmas and stuff. But then I remember there was a long weekend for tomb sweeping. I went back to Fujian to see my families and especially during this holiday, which brings family back together. That was awesome. But I remember the other one was Ui Fangjia. It was like the labor. It's like we have our, our, our labor day, which is in the beginning of September, right? But then it's like the communist workers day, May 1st, that is kind of celebrated around the world. So there was a full week then. I don't know if you've experienced it before, but that was cool as well. Yeah, that's actually when I went to Jiangxi last week. Oh, cool. Tomb sweeping holidays, it's kind of like Halloween. It's like you pay respect to your ancestors, but for foreigners staying in Shanghai, it's much more an opportunity to travel. Yeah, Shanghai is a, is a bit of a migrant city in some ways, right? A lot of people coming from all over the outskirts. I guess it's like Beijing. When I was chatting with the taxi drivers, they all come from Hebei or from the Northeast, like around, like surrounding um, cities. So I guess when like during those holidays, the city just empties itself, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Shanghai is a very popular destination for tourism, especially for people who haven't been to Shanghai yet. There's the Bund, and it really is a symbol of China's modern economic development and its success yeah. just by looking at its towers and Lu Jiazui, the Bund area of some of the world's tallest skyscrapers. And it's a view that, you know, you're from Montreal and you look at the Montreal skyline with a mountain you never get tired of. You go to Shanghai and it's look at it from the other side is you never yeah. get tired of it and you're always amazed by it. And then the best part is when you walk with, among those huge buildings and you feel like such a small being. It's every time you go there, you get that feeling and it never yeah. leaves you. It's definitely, yeah. I've been there multiple times and every time with friends, we just go and sit, you know, you can drink outside, you have a few beers and it's, you could stay there for hours and just chat, play cards, whatever. Oh, but I think, you know, why I said that is because I'm biased because when I arrived to Tsinghua for like for my exchange in Beijing, it was the like tail end of um, spring festival. So people were just going back to their families and not going for tourism, I guess for golden week. And I, I guess for the labor week, I guess it makes sense that people travel more. They're not necessarily going to see their families, but for spring festival, they're all in their home provinces, I guess, right? Yeah. Where did you spend? Yeah. Where did you spring, spend spring festival in the last years? Uh, spring festival. I mean, last year was in Jiangxi, basically. And other than that, I was. I think I stayed in Shanghai most of the time. Um, okay. My first year was exploring the outs the city and its outskirts. Yeah. We're talking that you weren't exposed that much in Montreal about all this culture and what's the level of appreciation you got living in China? Like, did you get to learn so much more or do you think most of the things you already knew or, you know, you, you now, you know, you seem to know the history yet. You say we, you weren't really exposed in Montreal. Like, how did you learn all these things? Well, when I came from Montreal, I, as you said, I didn't really have much of a context. I think what really prompted me to learn this much was curiosity. Where, does, where did this curiosity come from? It came from my own identity and curiosity towards uh, my Chinese heritage because I'm half Chinese. I mean, beyond career opportunity, coming to China was also a great occasion for me 
to reconnect with my roots. Uh, there's half my family that's in China and Shanghai, Xi'an, Beijing. Whether you're in China or not, everyone can see clearly that China is growing as a superpower. And whether it's a threat or not, it also presents enormous opportunity. And I think most people should understand that. And the challenge itself of understanding how China works and why it's come to this grand level of achievement, just as you said, by, by the, the skyline of the Shanghai buns and the, the skyscrapers is a wonder by itself. So coming to Shanghai really allowed me to kind of be exposed firsthand to um, China's economic development. And right now I work in an industrial company, so we manufacture factories and be, being able to see China grow through an industrial perspective, factory by factory, is insanely eye-opening because you're able to, for, like you're, you're in the middle of Shanghai and you're exposed to like very mundane and very comfortable foreign lifestyle, uh, international companies, chambers of commerce is, uh, you know, very, very international setting. And then the next second you're in the middle of an industrial rural area in the middle of nowhere, building a factory. And sometimes it's a foreign company, sometimes it's a Chinese company and they build it in a few months and the entire process is super fast. Most of the companies working in this industry have a lot of experience in building factories and China has a lot of experience in building factories. So it's very fast. Whereas, you know, it's a, it's a huge deal in the West as soon as a factory is built and it, you know, companies are proud to uh, state that it promotes a lot of local regional uh, development in terms of economic opportunity and jobs, et cetera. But this is happening at a pace that I think the West has to grasp how fast it's happening. And I'm not sure they understand how quickly it is. And, and when you and look yeah, at so graphs of like development of infrastructures, you know, when you compare, for instance, D-Train and you compare it to the West or even Japan, which was kind of a pioneer in this field, it's the, the scale has just completely changed. China developed thousands and thousands of kilometers of speed train while the others were just trailing, right? So I think this is quite a good symptom of what is going on. I think people don't grasp the scale of development, how people, like how China is building cities that people say are ghost cities, but they're just kind of planning the development and how it's going gonna, it's gonna to outstretch, right? Because people are actually living in those ghost cities now because they just know how the development is going to go, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those people are living in the ghost cities and I mean, they have plans, they have five-year plans, 10-year plans, and it doesn't happen immediately, but eventually, like, the fact that they have a plan and are able to push through and execute those initiatives already gives them a strong advance compared to other countries that don't even plan these type of things. And, I mean, a lot of, it's slowing down a lot recently, and we're talking about, oh, it's under 10-digit growth. For sure, it's slowing down. China's focusing its economy towards more of the service sector and innovation and technologies. But I mean, it's still growing a lot and they're building factories and you can see that a lot in uh, just by the amount of projects that are happening each year. You know, last year it's Tesla and there's pharmaceutical companies and, and especially with COVID actually, it shows that uh, China has a relative position of strength and especially certainty in terms of um, I would say short-term and medium-term economic development. And a lot of foreign companies are relatively secure uh, and confident to invest in those type of initiatives because they do believe in the Chinese market. But you know what nuance I would bring? It's interesting because that's your experience in Shanghai, which I think is really geared towards businesses, towards like bringing in you know, foreign investment. And that's where foreigners like kind of will go for business, right? In some ways, my experience in Beijing is a bit different because I remember having friends come to visit me in Beijing and what struck them the most was exactly what you're saying. They expected to see concrete jungle. They expected to see development everywhere, like, you know, construction everywhere. And then you bring them to the inner inner city and within the second ring road, you're not allowed to build higher than the forbidden city. And it's all old hutongs. It all looks super traditional. You would not be able to say that you're in the center at the core of a 25 million people city. You see what I mean? So. I find that there is this kind of disconnection in the sense that 
people imagine China as being this huge concrete jungle of construction, but I don't think that's what modernity in China means. There's, there were like horrible, you know, destruction of hutongs. Hutongs are the traditional uh, like neighborhoods, right, uh, in the middle of, of uh, Beijing with the traditional uh, courtyards, inner courtyards, etc. Um, for the people who don't know, and there were destruction of this, especially in the wake of the 2008 Olympics, and they were just trying to modernity at all costs. And I think now they realize that modernity is like, you know, being able to reconcile the old and the new. And I think that it's interesting that it's not all about construction fast pace. I think what struck my friends the most when they come to the West, from the West and have this preconceived idea is that it's not necessarily the concrete jungle that they thought. What is modern is how efficient everything is with the phones, how everything is connected with wireless, like with payments, how you can call a taxi, you could order your, your plane tickets all in the same app. All these things is what strikes them as the most like, whoa, okay, that's modernity in another way that we have in the West. What's your experience with that? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, staying within the circles and the city centers of the big cities really makes you realize that for example, Beijing and its hutongs, they're trying to preserve it and they're realizing more and more the value of their uh, historical and cultural heritage. It's the same thing for Shanghai and its uh, shikumens, which is the equivalent of hutongs that have kind of like an art deco style and have been there since the twenties. They're preserving that, they're destroying a lot obviously, but they're also preserving some. And it makes you realize that, you know, there are some areas where China values its historical heritage, but you really feel the fast paced development when you leave the big cities, when you go to industrial zones or new cities or um, underdeveloped cities, second tier, third tier cities, when you go there and it's an industrial development zone, maybe it starts like that. Um, there's, as you said, access to high speed train, ease of transport to get there uh, and to commute to these areas. Uh, maybe just a few hours outside of Shanghai or Beijing, where suddenly it's industrial instead of agricultural for what it used to be. And that brings economic activity. And then that attracts a new development plan. And so in these areas, that's where you feel the most um, progress where China's developing. Um, they're building infrastructure, they have their industrial activity, but then now they're also urban planning. They're planning for uh, the comfort of life of its citizens, um, education institutions. Uh, a lot of these rural cities, second tier, third tier cities, often are proud to uh, tell foreigners about their international educational institutions, hospitals that they're building there. That's where you feel like there's still a change where China is developing a really, really fast pace. So I would say it's in the big cities the you really feel the modernization of China through a technology and as it should through apps centralization and all the big data you can feel like they're taking a lot of your information and they're analyzing it their their algorithms are points for example when I shop on Taobao which is the equivalent of like Amazon in China um, they really know what to recommend you and Didi knows exactly uh, they're able to predict what are the next potential locations you'll be able to go to, et cetera. But then when you go to rural areas and other cities, not only do you have the technological aspect, but you also have, you see the progress of the industrial developments where, where you see physical change within the cities from farmland to industrial zones to um, habitable, habitable places for its, uh, for its citizens and their everyday lives. And for example, one of the things that they're planning a lot all across China is this notion of Xincheng, a new city, uh, if I translate from Chinese, where they plan entire cities and they develop their commercial zones, their industrial zones, their residential zones, their green areas, and they make it very environmentally friendly and they have targets to achieve, um, whether it's from the central government or from the local authorities. And their goal is just to improve the standard of living of China and while reducing, for example, uh, carbon footprint and environmental impact. There's still a lot of pollution obviously going on everywhere uh, because of the increased amount of production and economic activity everywhere, but they're also taking 
because it's growing so fast, they're taking into consideration uh, these factors at a weighted at a much uh, heavier degree than most of us in the West would be able to comprehend. It's really important for these local authorities to achieve um, these environmental targets, which I find is really interesting because it it is it does become a model for urban development when there's a lot of industrial activity. What do you think of this urban development? Because you mentioned it, right? They have this plan, but it ends up that a lot of the new cities that are developing are all kind of built in the same way. You have like kind of the same organization. You'll have a the train station there. You'll have a, a Wanda shopping mall. You know, you'll have like kind of the same kind of structure. Do you think this uniformity kind of prevents from having local characteristics that kind of show through, you know, this urban planning, through the architecture, et cetera? Do you think it's kind of making everything kind of too uniformized? I think it does, to be honest, but with long-term experience, then they'll able they'll be able to fine-tune their planning and design to um, kind of capture the more local and cultural aspects. For example, last week I was on a trip to Shandong for business. Uh, with actually uh, the government of Quebec is really amazing. They're, they have so much development in terms of like green hospitals. For example, like in uh, Wuhan, when they built the Leishan Shan uh, hospital in like 10 days, which is a modular hospital, that was a huge exploit that was spoken about all over media in the West. And so they're kind of taking this model and they're building other hospitals, not just modular hospitals, but just more healthcare in general, also of the aging population. So there, there's a huge opportunity in that sector. And so when you go there, the thing is Shandong is beautiful and you do see the characteristics, um, but the entire experience basically is that you take the high speed train and you go from one train station to the other, Shanghai to Shandong, and the train station looks exactly the same. Then you enter the hotel, and the hotel looks like any other generic hotel from Shanghai. Um, it's a foreign brand. It's comfortable. Ease of, I mean, you feel comfortable as a foreigner, live, like spending your time and sleeping there. And then you go to the meeting room. You talk. Maybe you take a tour of the city. You eat a bit of local food. You get a little feel of it except for a few um, cultural sites of the city, it's all residential buildings, stories and stories of buildings that look exactly the same, just tall buildings everywhere. And it doesn't look like a different city. It just looks like a city with a whole bunch of skyscrapers that all look exactly the same. And then once you finish your meeting, you go back to the train station of uh, Shandong and back to Shanghai. It just doesn't feel like you've been to a different city. It just feels like you've been to a different uh you took the subway and you just commuted quickly to, yeah yeah so so definitely it lacks that color in sometimes um but actually the highlight of my trip when i uh in shandong was when i was able to take the high speed train back and on the way back then you're able to see the rural areas and then you have farms you have little industrial areas you have the shandong villages some of them even have solar panels even in the middle of nowhere on their uh, in their villages, and uh, they have factories, but uh, they have mountains, and that's when you see like the local landscape much more. But in terms of building and um, infrastructure, it all pretty much looks the same. So yeah, I, I think that China does have to kind of change. It's it's pretty uniform in terms of development, and standardization is probably pragmatic option for its population right now. So I don't blame them. But in terms of experience and diversity, obviously, if you're not there for business and you want to go hike a mountain or something, you'll see something more. But in terms of just city experience, it feels pretty much the same. I've been wondering this. Do you think that what you see from the train is representative of what you could see not from the train? Like, do you think that it's it's kind of tattered in some ways? Yeah, sometimes I wonder if they purposely kind of uh, put the trails on us in areas that are scenic. And I think that, to be honest, any country building highways or train uh, train rails around their country will purposely also choose to display uh, nicer yeah. uh, landscapes. So <laughs> that's not just China, it's everywhere, yeah. right? And um, I guess it makes sense that development would be around the train stations as it's 
so prominent. And I, I know sometimes you're like, you're in a high speed train and it seems to stop in the middle of nowhere. And there's a train station there and people get off and a lot of people get on. And I guess there's developments all along the line. But I wanted to say about the train stations, I asked because I was biased because my first experience living in China was in Chengdu. And Chengdu is like one of the most culturally rich city or culturally like they, they really kind of showcase their culture. And the train station has like those huge kind of sculptures of, it looks like kind of pre-Columbian masks. It's like comes from the Sanxingdui architectural, uh, sorry, archaeological site. And it's really famous in Chengdu. And I thought it was kind of like that everywhere. And then you realize, no, the train stations that are built everywhere are all pretty much the same. And that was maybe something unique from Chengdu. But so I'm looking forward to this. And it's funny because you mentioned second tier city, third tier city. Like my mom comes from what you would say maybe is a third tier city. And for us, it's a bit crazy because it's probably as many people as Montreal, right? It's probably two, three million people. It's Longyan, like near uh, in Fujian province. And it's exactly what you say that it used to be this, I was there in 2004 for the first time. And it's this, everybody on bike, you know, bicycle and kind of going around in this inner, small inner city. And now it's just everybody by car or by motorcycle. It's like the huge development, it, it outstretched everywhere. You don't have this inner city anymore. It's just like those same roads as you could see everywhere else. And it's the same shopping malls. And it's just like, it's nice in some ways because it's really clean, it's ordered and it's very efficient, but it's also like, have they lost a bit of what made them this cute little tea making city? I'm not sure. Yeah, but it's always easy to kind of look at these cities from a cultural heritage perspective and condemn the economic development. But at the same time, perhaps the standards of living had completely changed. And once the standards of living increase, then you're able to actually focus on preserving culture. Um, for yeah. example, the masks in Chengdu um, in your train station, I haven't experienced that. That's good for you. You've never and been to Chengdu? I, no, I have to go. Yes. Yeah, point. you're missing something in your life. All that great I, food. I've heard many good things about the food there. So it's definitely on the list. But uh, most of the train stations pretty much in Shanghai, the Jiangsu province, pretty much look the same, to be honest. Um, some of the train stations will put in an extra effort, for example, for the entrance, the architecture to incorporate some elements of ancient Chinese design to make the pillars, for example, look more like ancient Chinese pillars um, yeah. and have some architectural components of the local areas. But then after the inside is a huge, massive logistics zone planned for huge amounts of humans to travel the worst time being chinese new year yeah. uh, with a bunch of businesses restaurants whether it's chinese or like mcdonald's or starbucks even tim hortons to be honest they're starting uh, in shanghai <laughs> I saw that. yeah yeah but um most of it is just for convenience and i think they are covering that need and then comes the next step is to embellish and preserve local culture. Uh, hopefully they don't, they, they preserve it on their way now. And I think in the new developments in China, the, authority, the authorities are aware um, of preserving local heritage and architecture and incorporating it in their design, even though they're planning for a super modern a new city, for example. I want to ask you a question because you've been talking about your life in China and I've been sharing as well. It's fun to talk with you because we're both kind of, we're half Chinese, half Quebecois, and we both kind of lived in China, right? You've lived there for two years now and it's two years and a half, I think. And I've lived there only a year total, but we kind of really went back to connect with our roots. And it's really fun to relate because there's not that many people that can, that are in the same situation that really can understand this. My question is, when you were in Montreal growing up, how did you express your Chinese identity? It was kind of always there, not because I chose it, but because my family and the context I was in cultivated this. I had a Chinese mother, and so with her, I always spoke Chinese. I went to Chinese school on Saturdays and studied Chinese. Jiahua? But Yeah, exactly. Of course. Uh, who, who doesn't <laughs> go to Jiahua? That's That's... The Chinese community in Montreal, all there, you know, and then you after school and you do some math homework and then you play video games like typical Saturday. 
and then after like the grandma of my one of my best friends from Chinese school would make really, really, really good local food. So um, to be honest, I would say the best tasting Chinese food in Canada isn't in, well, in Montreal anyways, wasn't in restaurants in my childhood experience, but more because I had the privilege of tasting local food from uh, grandmas who lived in China and who were cooking real authentic food. But other than that, like, to be honest, when I had to speak Chinese at home, I knew I could always get away with English. And so I was kind of lazy. I spoke English words and you have some half Chinese, like Chinese friends, but also in the same context as you speaking mostly English. And then, oh yeah, oh, you're also Chinese. So you kind of relate from time to time on some like Chinese New Year, like Hongbao, you get like some money for Chinese New Year, or mm, you eat some more Chinese food. Uh, you go to Chinatown, you drink bubble tea, uh, you get into gaming, stuff like that. But after that, like, that's pretty much what it was in Montreal. But what really sparked further interest and curiosity towards China itself was kind of when you get into a business or like a, a university and educational institution that shows you that business and international relations are very, very present and close tied with China because of its increase increase in relevancy in the world. So kind of having that dialogue with Chinese professionals within Montreal who come from China, who've had experience in China, that's what really makes you realize that China beyond like your textbook, like growing industrial relevancy and pollution and stuff is playing a role um, in our everyday lives, whether it's investing in um, Canadian infrastructure or vice versa, our exports and our everyday goods coming from China. And then that's what really kind of makes you realize the larger context and your sense of heritage, but also the relevancy of the country within the world. So it starts off of really uh, small aspects and planting the seed. Mm, but I think for you as well, maybe your context wasn't, mm, it, it yeah, was a very, very yeah. good start. But then after you're like, okay, what's actually going on in China? What's, what's, what's happening there? People are telling me stuff. Maybe you have your parents' version that's very, you know, they, they lived through incredible periods of development, but what you're hearing in the news might be different, you know? So you're like, what's actually going on there? Why is it growing so fast? And that's that plus your inherent culture and your identity pushes you to kind of really, really be interested in your Chinese culture. Yeah, well, I feel like my experience was a bit different from yours and I'm happy that you had a good time on Saturdays and you know, you got this contact. I remember it was war every Saturday. My brother and I, we wouldn't want to go. It was horrible. We were there like our, my, our level of Chinese spoken was pretty bad. And you were going into these classes where you were learning how to write with all these fluent, you know, people from the DS, Chinese people from the diaspora who could speak fluently. They were speaking together, they were playing and you just felt excluded, you know? And I grew up in, in an area where it was predominantly white or yeah. non-Chinese. And, you know, like I was playing, I played soccer and hockey at pretty competitive levels all my life where there is not many Chinese people. And of course I received, like it was, a, I received my fair load of racist insults, you know, and it's part of the game, of course, but it's yeah. just like kind of, it kind of led to some forms of self-hate because at some point you're there at school where it's the Chinese are just the ones that are good at school. And I was good at school too. So I felt I was a bit in this kind of just put it being put in this box and I didn't want to be put in this box. So it led to some self-hate because it was just like all the other parts were not that positive. People were maybe jealous because the Chinese students were good at school and they were kind of mean. And for me, it led to just pushing back and going more and more towards my Quebecois identity, which was more easy, easier to blend in, you know? And I remember when I was in China, I would go visit. I was, I was, I was, I said, I was eight when I first went and it just felt like I was that the foreigner there, of course. And even now that I speak better, et cetera, and I go, I'm still kind of seen as the foreigner. And it just, you come back to Montreal and you're also kind of the foreigner. And it just, you grow up with this sense that you belong nowhere and that you're a foreigner everywhere. And it's, I remember I really struggled with it growing up and I still struggle with it now in the construction of my identity. And I guess now I'm more at peace with it because at some point after CJEP, I realized that it was kind of stupid that I had neglected this rich identity that I had. And I just 
went back and I lived. That's when I lived in Chengdu and I learned the language and I learned so much about the culture. I was living in a Chinese family. And that was, that was maybe the best decision I ever took in my life, you know. But growing up, and I think a lot of people feel this, it was very difficult. You feel that you're put in a box that is difficult to go away, away from. And people say, you're so lucky you have this culture that is going to be so powerful in the next in, in, in the future, but it's not the reality then. The, China is not, it was not that powerful back in the days. It was just like, you didn't want to be Chinese. You know, it, it was not cool to not be part of the majority back in the days. And now I have faith because it seemed that it changed and people are celebrating their uniqueness. They're celebrating their difference. They're celebrating being part of other ethnicities and especially China. And that has nothing to do with the government or whatever they do. It goes beyond the China, Canada, tense relations that are going now. I hear so many people sometimes say, oh, in primary school or even in high school, they're learning Chinese. And I'm like, whoa, why would they do that? And I'm, wow, that's cool, you know? And I find people want to learn Chinese now. They want to learn about the Chinese culture, the Chinese people. And that makes me proud now. And I wish that I had grown up in this. It might have avoided some identity struggles that I live with. And I don't know if maybe it, you can relate a bit, but that's definitely how I felt growing up. Yeah. I think growing up as a Canadian Quebecois, you always want to relate with your closest identity and the, uh, what's the most immediate is the Quebec identity. And I think, I guess the difference between you and me is that I saw myself more as kind of a Quebecer or I, I would even say Montrealer, which incorporates both kind of like the Canadian Anglophone, but also Francophone aspect. And then naturally just kind of doing my Chinese activities on the side as well and that not really getting in the way of my day-to-day -day Quebecer life. I mean I did get into gaming and I got a geeky phase and you know beyond being good at school and you know being good at math and everything there's also like oh Chinese people really like gaming and are super geeky and now like it's perceived as cool so I celebrated but that was something like you know I used to like to draw anime or like mangas and stuff like that and maybe my style is very different I went to an all-girls school and it was like very not normal to see like a girl into such boyish activities and everything but when you come to China everything is completely normal and actually you realize that a lot of people grew up with this actual this exact same kind of lifestyle and interests um, in China so suddenly you don't feel that special anymore you feel like a lot of people are uh, have exactly the same taste and grew up with the same culture as you so you don't feel that differentiated as anymore you feel the differentiation through the fact that you're Canadian and you have that Quebecer lifestyle that they never had which is like spending most of your childhood speaking a lot of French spending a lot of time in nature and everything this is something that maybe you we both did naturally and that was just part of the way we grew up and maybe um, some people try to go more within that sphere. But at the end of the day, I think the, the, the Quebecer identity becomes stronger when you go abroad. And it's like anything. And you, you have Chinese people celebrating their culture right now. And you have more immigrants celebrating their international heritage. But I don't think that's just limited, especially in Quebec, to Chinese people. I think that's limited to, that, that applies to everyone um, who has a mixed identity or who has um, different origins than purely from Quebec. It's really interesting. You end up um, having, as you said, being part of both worlds, um, trying to be accepted by both, but none at the same time. And you always end up between both, especially during these tense relations. A lot of the times, you're reflecting on the your, your identity and um, if you have to pick sides and where you come from. I think both you and I were raised in Canada and we have Western values, but then after living in China for a while gives you empathy and then helps you understand why things are done in a certain way in China. And that at the end of the day, a country is trying to strive for its better well-being for the people within the country. And it, it really helps you understand their perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. And these value clash that you talk about, it's, you know, I'm sure you adopted a few things that the Chinese people do. And I'm sh I surely did as well and stuff that I find are beautiful. And I'm going to give a, a bit of a quick example. I, I remember my dad telling me 
at first when my mom would receive my mom has been here since like over 30 years and when she would receive Chinese people in Montreal and that was before I was born my parents weren't that rich right then it was my mom was still offering her guests everything it was just everything and that's the Chinese way and my dad would be like what are you doing you know we're not rolling on money here we need that it's like and my dad actually told me recently he was like that's when he told me and he was like now I get it a hundred percent and he he's married to a Chinese woman and he's been to China often and he sees how it is when you go to China and yeah. the hospitality there is insane it's nothing I've seen in in the west and I'm not saying that people are not able to receive but the amount of sacrifices people will do for the guest and it's I've benefited from it living in a Chinese family for six months and I'm so thankful for all the people that have received me well and it's something that I got as a value from that and when I receive friends here now it's like it's it goes it's just normal I'm going to pay for it it's like I go to a restaurant with friends I'm paying for it and even though it hurts on the on the wallet it's just how it is yeah. it's like if I invite friends for Chinese food that's just how it is you know and sometimes they're shocked it's like what are you doing can we split and for me splitting seems like the most crazy thing to do in a restaurant now I can I hate it to do it now you know what I mean and it's there's these little things that I going to China just felt were just right and it's nice to be able to it's crazy a bit to be able to pick and choose some values like that but I find it's a nice thing that we get to do and it's like a yeah just wanted to share this anecdote yeah you, but like exactly you say like this splitting the bill aspect I think that's a very interesting case because in China I think it lies a lot in the value of giving face right so giving your yeah. guests the face and the honor and respecting them and showing that this like whether you have means or not to do it it's kind of showing oh you're my guest it's my honor if you come to my place I'll pay for you if I go to your place then like then you can pay for me and it's almost as if if you don't do it that way then you're disrespecting them as a person and and then you have that clash as well it's really interesting in Shanghai among the foreigner circle where people are still kind of used to splitting things but then when you're in the Chinese context okay maybe the, the Chinese person will pay for everything but when you're among foreigners uh, you're probably going to split but then after some foreigners have lived in China longer so they're happy to pay and there's still that clash that happens within this little bubble. So how is it for you like living in China now do you think do you think there's a barrier in making friends that are fully Chinese would you say that you, you are able to have meaningful friendships and I know it's a very loaded question but I'm wondering you growing up not in China do you think there's a cultural barrier that to, the, to those friendships? I think that there are pleasant and good people everywhere you go, but then after forming a deep bond with them, um, often it starts with values, right? Um, we were born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and we have very Western values on that point. So it's it's less about the, the nationality or the color of your skin or your ethnic origins, but it's more about the mentality. So obviously the easiest point the easiest kind of way is to spend your time and forge these friendships with foreigners who have exactly the same lifestyle and perhaps a story that's similar to yours and that are here to discover China and who are facing the same issues advantages opportunities as you but then after there are some Chinese people that I would say are relatively easier to form um, deep friendships and bonds with and those are the Chinese people who kind of like studied abroad or lived abroad and then they come back to China and they're often called uh, returnees but those people they are curious naturally about the west and the mentality and having spent time there they're much more open-minded and these people are willing to have the conversation that perhaps local people from mainland who maybe aren't exposed to that many different types of mentalities are willing to have as a conversation. And so these people, just by aligning your values and having these type of conversations, and then by them kind of experiencing the same lifestyle as you, but you living in China and kind of living the same lifestyle as they have, I would say that type of people is easier to form bonds with in terms of uh, actual people from China, Chinese citizens. But then again, people coming directly from mainland China and having never been outside in China, 
there there's good people and there's bad people everywhere but then will you get along with them will you understand them deeply were you able to quote vibe with them or kind of have the same sense of humor the same type of culture yeah. um they probably they're like oh i love you know uh rihanna or stuff like that but that's that's not enough you know i think a deep bond starts with values and and a mentality and and language that, probably that because, yeah no but language like i mean i speak chinese with i yeah, mean i'm lucky even if you speak chinese i find there's our chinese let's say when we speak it there's going to be a few words of english that come in naturally or french and i find there's some expressions that they have that even if we speak fluent chinese it's not expressions that we understand, just slang and stuff. And I find that from people that studied abroad, they're more sensitive of this because they have been in the West and know what's the, like who, which expressions we might know versus might not know. And I find it's not only the language barrier, of course, but I find that is one barrier that exists, but maybe not in your experience. Well, I guess in Shanghai, one of the things is that it's actually trendy uh, to say a lot of like keywords or slang words in English. Uh, okay. Uh, so they like a lot of Chinese people will end up like speaking English, uh, like in like Chinglish as we would yeah. call it, and adding English expressions to their Chinese and them being much more, I would say, because of Western media's soft power and ability to have like broadcast uh, media all over the world and accessing China even with the VPN and the firewall they're exposed to it and they're able to understand our culture much more than we're able to understand local mainland trends. So they, they do end up having much more understanding of the Western culture. But then after we're here, we're, we're here to learn and to catch up with their side of the culture. And I think it just takes a bit of curiosity. It doesn't mean you're going to end up adopting those trends, to be honest, or they're their preferences and styles and everything but it helped you, you you do get influenced after a certain point if you spend enough time with these people it's just about how open-minded you are to be honest okay it's like i'm glad that you answered this because i found that by experience it was similar i had easier bonds with people that had lived abroad studied abroad maybe it's because my it was too short term and you know i used to be like not understanding why people go abroad and then suddenly they they get they just travel with Quebecers just naturally and yeah. you know I also used to think that from this Quebec point of view that there was a lot of similarities between in Anglo Canada the rest of Canada and the U.S. but then you get to China and it's like there's different levels right you meet someone and they're from Canada and it's like oh wow there's much more affinities than I thought there were when I was living in Quebec like much more and then you meet a Quebecer. There's not that many, but you meet a Quebecer and it's like, wow. First thing they tell you, ask them, where are you from? And they're like Montreal. And then <laughs> they're like, where in Montreal? And they're busted because they live like from Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu or something. Yeah. And they didn't realize that you were from Montreal. And like, oops, nope, I'm from outside of Montreal. Anyway, that, um, yeah. but yeah, it's like naturally, I stopped being a bit judgmental and I realized it's just so natural and so comfortable to go towards people that you can connect with in this in this way. And, and that's why it, it makes me sad. My question makes me sad in the sense that I wish that it was so easy to just make friends with, you know, mainland yeah, people you know, and no, I you, wish. You definitely need to put that extra effort to kind of bond and forge these friendships with local people, even if they spend time and studied abroad um, because of the language and cultural barrier. They will gravitate towards their mainland preferences. They came back to China. It's comfortable for them. It's yeah. comfortable for us to spend time with foreigners and people who have the same experience and mentality. I'm just saying that it's possible if you really want to. And to be honest, there's a lot of Chinese people who are very interested and willing to socialize um, with foreigners because of their, their background that's so different. Especially, especially after the pandemic, when uh, the numbers of foreigners have been shrinking in China, a lot of people returned back home during COVID and because of unsure situations or decided that they didn't, they didn't want to live in China anymore. Um, there are less and less of these foreigners and China is also trying to attract more, but more qualified or like yeah. scientific, innovative kind of disciplines into the country. 
So it's it's not as casual and open as what is what it used to be, but I, I do say that that curiosity remains. Do you feel this rise of anti-Asian hate? Do you feel anything in China or do you feel like maybe the opposite? Is there like kind of a push, an anti-foreigner push that has been happening? Yeah, this is a pretty loaded question, to be honest. When I came to China, you still felt the empathy and a genuine excitedness and curiosity of Chinese yeah. people towards foreigners, especially Canadians. But with the pandemic, I would say things changed. You know, there's this saying, there's this perception that everything that comes from the West, especially in the early 2000s, um, everything that's foreigner is better, for example. But there is a sense of pride and nationalism growing within China. And I think that was really emphasized during the pandemic, where the Chinese people realized how well the government handled the pandemic situation within China, felt a sense of pride. The government emphasized it and it worked. Everyone's happy about it. And so they're taking more and more of a stance of pride within their own country. And then the couple, couple of that with the fact that afterwards, a lot of the cases inside mainland China were imported. So quote unquote imported, meaning uh, coming from foreign, like outside of China, whether it's from like salmon or returnees from uh, people from coming outside of China. That kind of planted a sense of fear within the Chinese people of everything that was foreigner. That coupled with the fact that they were proud about their own country started changing the attitudes within the people, both on the, I would say, policy level for like travel and uh, ease of treatment like of foreigners in China, but also with the attitudes within people. So the, the mentalities, especially. So for example, when I was traveling in Qinghai, uh, which is the province in the north of China, um, that's not a metropolitan city of Shanghai, for example, people saw me as a foreigner because even though I'm half Chinese, I just look different to them. And they see me as a foreigner. And then, you know, I hear comments like, oh, look, a foreigner run away, you know, because they associate me to an imported case of virus. The irony of that, beyond the fact that the virus started in China, is that imported cases are actually mostly Chinese people coming back and doing the quarantine. And so imported cases actually implies the fact that most people are Chinese and coming back and spreading the virus because it's very difficult. It was very difficult for foreigners to come back to China in the first place. So you had arbitrary measures towards foreigners. It wasn't that differentiated towards Chinese people. Uh, because of the green QR code. So that was a standardized measure for everyone to kind of um, demonstrate or prove that you came from a, a risk-free area, that you didn't have the virus. Uh, that coupled with the fact that they every, every checkpoint that you go to, they take your temperature. It was pretty standardized. But then after you have the attitudes of the people in Shanghai as well, like I, I gave the example when I was traveling, but then you have people like taxi drivers, for example, in Shanghai, they, they're, they're proud of their country. They're, they're saying how good it is. And then beyond COVID, they're also mentioning the fact, for example, for Canada, uh, that um, China's getting unfair treatment in terms of international treatment, for example, for Huawei and then after Xinjiang and everything. So it, it really brought a different attitude after the pandemic of Chinese people towards foreigners. To clarify, most a lot of my Chinese friends that have been abroad don't have that opinion, but those who are exposed just to Chinese media and that, that general rising attitude within China, I do feel the attitude changing towards foreigners. They're not as welcome. They're associated to the virus. They're stigmatized. And I mean, we did benefit of a status, a superior treatment before of Chinese people. And I feel that's fading with the virus. And do people talk about the anti-Asian hate wave that is going on in the West or not really? Um, not that much, to be honest, because we're in Asia. So there's no anti-Asian discrimination that's happening inside of Asia, inside of China. They hear about it outside, especially those who have had access to VPN or Western media. Um, but oftentimes their comments are like, oh, but wasn't that happening such a long time ago? Like, I'm not surprised this is going on. This has been going on for a while because before the pandemic, there's already an anti-China sentiment that was rising in the West and China felt it. Now that the Asian 
community beyond Chinese people in the West are feeling this impact of um, the hate, then it's a growing sentiment in the West. But for China, it didn't really make a difference in the first place. Like I know you, you've done a project recently, I'd love you to talk about that maybe is part of the way for Chinese government, China to kind of improve the image the West has of them. You know, the China probably knows that the image is quite negative. Do you think they're doing anything to try to improve this? Like you could call that a soft power offensive. And this kind of lies, uh, you know, when there was this kind of mask diplomacy at the beginning of the pandemic, they were trying to help out by sending a bunch of, of masks and protective equipment around the world and kind of show that they had good goodwill, good faith, and they were willing to work with the global community. Do you think, what do you think they're doing to improve the image? I think that they're aware I think that China is aware of the fact that um, their message of the message of the success of the government handling the pandemic uh, really resonates within the local people. But in the West, it's not making that much of a difference in Western media. So recently they are changing their narrative. Uh, this year, 2021 is the 100th anniversary of the CCP, the China Communist Party. And they're celebrating that and they want to kind of like highlight that to the West, but in a way that speaks to them. So, for example, I was contacted by Xinhua, which is the uh, official agency, the official media of the Chinese government to kind of interview foreigners inside of Shanghai and introduce them to local members of the Communist Party to experience what their daily life is like, how they help society and get to know them and why they joined and everything. We even went to a school, a university where they're uh, students considering to join the party. And I mean, they were very, very bright students with, you know, con a conscious, uh, critical mind. And still, they were willing to join the Communist Party. And then as foreigners, it was kind of our role to interview them and to kind of understand why they're doing such things and the sentiment is prevailing in China but then after they're trying to shape that dialogue in a way that the West would understand and one of the things one of the key things that they've been doing in China and they've been trying to do this for a while now is to kind of get foreigners as agents as as faces to approve or to experience or to share that experience. So through the eyes of the foreigner within this experience, that kind of gives legitimacy to whatever the, the Communist Party is doing. So I was invited to comment on that. And I thought it was very an interesting experience because it did give me the opportunity to access and understand what the Communist Party accomplishes on a day-to-day -day basis and to understand um, some good points of them. For example, they're actually aiding society and during the coronavirus, there's 90 million members all across China that were mobilized to uh, volunteer in social work and to kind of uh, help out those who are in need. But at the, at the same time, it serves as promotion to the West. They're framing it in a way that would speak to Western media through the eyes of the foreigner. And I think that's the main point, the main, I think China is aware of the fact that it has, it faces difficulties to communicate these types of messages that resonate so well inside of China to the West because their media is so oftentimes uh, directly a source of the party itself. Xinhua is directly funded by the government and it's a mouthpiece of the government having the eye of the foreigner is definitely a way for them to kind of show this perspective in a way that would speak to Western media much more. So do you think that China can succeed? What do you see as the future like in improving the relationship with the West and improving the image people have of China? Do you think it's bound to just decrease and not really reconcile ever? Or do you think there's hope? For the time being, to be honest, I wouldn't say that everyone's going to become friends again. And it's really saddening for me as a Canadian to say that. But the prevailing sentiment right now is that China's a adversary. It's a competitor. But it doesn't mean that it has to be destroyed at all costs. I think the attitude is that the West has to deal with China, but not defeat it. And through cooperation, which is a bit different uh, under the Biden administration compared to Trump's, that, yeah, China is a competitor, but there's still areas of cooperation uh, that can be found. Given that China and the West will 
probably remain adversary for the foreseeable future. How do you see, and to kind of close the conversation, what do you see for people like us who are kind of mixed and kind of torn between those two uh, rivals? To be honest, it's all about building bridges in areas where there is a potential cooperation. Perhaps on a more official level, uh, on a country to country level, there might be some challenges uh, between countries. But if you're able to build bridges in areas that are non-governmental, I think, and to maintain these ties, uh, that's the best hope uh, in terms of like economic activity and also through environmental initiatives. Those are the best areas. And both China and the, and the West, the United States or Canada, Uh, have a lot of incentives to cooperate on those areas. China has a lot of experience and a lot of incentives to kind of improve the well-being of all of its citizens and it's polluting a lot. Um, as we mentioned in the Beijing in Beijing, the skies one day it's blue, one day it's completely polluted, right? So in the capital of China, they're feeling this need right away to kind of change the status quo. So those are areas that can definitely be worked on together. And hopefully in the long run, um, people realize that even though the bottom line values are different, countries can work together to make the world a better place by working on their similarities rather than differences. And on an individual level, people like us can continue to work as, you know, through this whole conversation, we see that our mixed identity have both shaped us in very different ways, but also in a very similar way. And it's been such a nice conversation to be able to relate on these, to share our passion for both Quebec, Canada, and also Chinese culture. So I hope that in the future, we can continue to build bridges ourselves around us. And I think we've been doing this a lot in the last years. And I sincerely hope that this conversation can continue. Yeah, I hope so as well. Thanks so much, Katya. It was such a good conversation. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of MIR Meets. Make sure to follow the McGill International Review on Facebook and Instagram for more quality content.